Hi, this is Sarah Shepard. And this is Keith Hazen-Deem. And, and this, this is Dungeons, Dungeons and Documentation. Documentation. A podcast where we explore information architecture through the lens of role-playing games. This week we'll be speaking with another Jason, Jason Bernert. Uh, Jason has a long career in technology and journalism and presently is a software engineer for the Washington Post. We got him into the studio to talk about design systems and style guides, but our conversation became a little more wide-ranging and was on so many topics, we decided to devote this episode entirely to our interview with Jason. Next week, we will be coming out with what would normally be part two of the episode. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about... uh, what names do and don't do uh, within the world of Dungeons and Dragons. And then we will also go on to talk about how to create a style guide for your campaign. So look forward to that here in a couple weeks. But for now, please enjoy our interview with Jason. We certainly did. So last I knew, you worked at the Washington Post, but I understand you don't do that anymore. Is that right? I still work at the Washington Post, oh, but okay. I've changed my role now for the fourth time in four years. You know, you can't yeah. be caught being too many, doing too many things. Yeah, yeah. I think if you're doing the same thing longer than 18 months, you got to mix it up. It's a natural <laughs> cycle of life. It yeah. is. I agree with that. I've been a news designer, a product designer, and now I work as a software engineer working on novel computer-aided reporting techniques. So that means like how can we build software to make journalists' lives easier and also like so they can get a story out more quickly or more easily. Um, So it's a lot of like really kind of niche software to solve really specific problems. Can you give us an example of something that you're working on if you can say? Uh, I'll give you an example like a past project we Mm -hmm. worked on. So for instance during like the January 6th insurrection Mm -hmm. um, it was all captured like on Parler you know that uh, video capturing platform and then that platform closed down but before that we worked to scrape and catalog all those videos so all of them would be available to our journalists to like recreate the event and so then you can kind of run different analysis over it like facial recognition to figure out who was there when those videos were taken where those videos were taken you kind of like piece things together so it's a really big like technical task but it's also a journalistic task so the newsroom engineering team that i'm on kind of combines what the newsroom does with what engineers do so if there's a journalism problem that can be a very like technical problem like downloading thousands and thousands of videos like we step in and try to help that help them out got it so the guy in the suit and the fedora with the press sign in his hat is out there like collecting data and then you're sort of interfacing them with the 21st century basically well you know journalists i think are in the 21st century but we try yeah, to sure. no the, one wears those hats anymore it's true i don't did no one tell you that keith oh no i mean oh man i'm not gonna that. tell him yeah I'm not going to tell him. That, no wonder I never see any journalists. I'm always <laughs> looking for the person in the fedora with the press pass stuck in it. Yeah, I thought I thought journalism was a dying trade. There, that's everyone thought is because the magazines and newspapers weren't being published anymore. But you yeah. were just looking for the hats. Yeah, that's right. I just couldn't didn't see them. Yeah. Oh man. So we helped the people in the hats, Keith. Yeah. Good. Um, I mean, they need it. There's very few of them left. Yeah. Um, so we have, uh, so that's what my team does. We kind of interface between the world of engineering and the world of uh, journalism in the newsroom. Yeah. Um, but before that, I was working on a uh, the Washington Post design system. So we have an internal design system that mm-hmm. allows designers and engineers to easily talk about 
uh, what components to use and what like design um, foundation to use, like color or spacing and all these things that help build and create like websites and UI for the Washington Post, whether mm -hmm. it's on the Washington Post homepage or uh, an article page, like we helped kind of design all those things. And so, so when it comes to systems, spoiler alert, those are the things that I'm really passionate yeah. about. And was yeah. that for print and digital or just digital? Like, is there the print side of the post completely separate from the online app experience? So what I worked on was the online design system. So we already kind of have a system for like the newspaper and how it lays out mm -hmm. and how there's like layouts and columns and typefaces and the line height for those typefaces and how we style certain headlines. And so that's been established for the last hundred plus years. We yeah. kind of design it every couple decades, you know, redesign it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's that the paper's coasting along just fine. However, like everything we're building online is like constantly evolving. Like everything we did like a year ago has already been rethought, you know, yeah. whereas the newspaper can kind of, you know, luckily for us, newspapers haven't really changed too much in the last hundred years um, when it comes to design. So that one's like, okay, it can kind of coast on its own. But the design system I was working on was very like digital forward. So it was like how we build things online, how should things look in the app, kind of all those digital experiences. Well, so, I mean, it occurs to me that what you're doing and what you're working on is very important. And you, you are sort of uniquely positioned working at the Washington Post in order to do it and be supported in doing it because you're sort of working on how to make a newspaper and the news relevant in the 21st century. I mean, computer-aided reporting has been around for decades. Like what? some of the early ages of computer-aided reporting was like when the computers came out and you switched from a typewriter on your desk to a computer on your desk, reporters and journalists were already thinking about like, well, how can we use this to help tell stories, right? Mm -hmm. Like how can we convert these big handwritten notes into a spreadsheet, right? And by cataloging all this data and then like you know, summarizing it was in early early days that was like computer aided reporting it was kind of the work we're doing it was just the work that was going on 40 50 years ago instead of today but as we know with all technology it gets it grows and becomes more and more complex and mm -hmm. so over the years here are this is like it's not a new concept what we do right we just try to do it at a different scale so even in small smaller newsrooms local newsrooms like uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting, my former newsroom just up the way. Like, OPB. Mm-hmm. Support your local station. Woot, woot. Um, you know, there's uh, the exact same process happening there. But it's often when it's a smaller newsroom, it's usually like, you know, one nerd who went to journalism school. But that was you. And a few others up there. Like Tony Schick is a investigative reporter up there who does the same thing. But, you know, like how can I use databases or the computer you know various like uh, computer reporting techniques to like make my life easier how can i use it to like find a story that no one else does like if you can pull a database and start running queries against it then like that's a great lead for a story you know so like why are there you know like these outliers in this data set and then find who like knows and can talk about it you know and that's why you pick up the phone and call the person like who's deep inside of like a government organization that handles the data and it's the first time they've talked to a journalist like in years if not their whole career and then you have a great lead going so i think like it's not a new concept what our department does we just do it at a different scale so the washington post newsroom is very large where like uh at opb it's a uh, maybe 100 people working on content when i was there and like the newsroom was maybe like 30-ish people and like the majority of them already had dedicated things so like my group is like nine people you know so you know it's like maybe like one or two people working on these things but in the newsroom of the washington post with like a thousand journalists so there are still plenty of journalists you know mm -hmm. They're working on projects at a different scale, right? So when you work, talk about like the January 6th uh, story, 
no one person is going to look through every single video to try to identify a face. So like, how do you use like no longer the Excel spreadsheet on your desk to like summarize data, but how do you use facial recognition across thousands of videos to figure out who was there that day? Mm -hmm. And so like as the scope and scale of technology grows, so does like the support with a newsroom to try to match that. Yeah. So that's why like our department exists is because there's just so much more information and data like and it's you know continually growing and also the ways to like analyze and understand that data is also growing so it's become an industry in of itself to like have teams like work on this space yeah okay so let's dive in a little deeper uh, into that space and talk about what we actually came here to talk about um so let's just start with a very simple question what is a design system yeah, so design systems also have been around for a long time, um, but they've kind of grown and, and shaped in different ways. And so I think some of the early design systems I'm thinking of are like when, uh, for instance, like NASA needs to be branded, right? And they have mm -hmm. their little like logo and they want to know how it looks on like their letterhead and they want to know how it looks like on the side of the building or side of a rocket. They had like style guides that said like, okay, if you're going to put the logo, make sure it's like in the upper right corner, the upper left corner and make sure it's like this far away from the edges of the paper. Um, so there's been like design guidance for a long time. So a style guide and a design system, are those synonymous or is it like a rectangle square situation? It's more of like a like a Venn diagram and mm. the style guide is just one piece of the Venn diagram that fits into a design system. So when mm. design system meets physical element, style guide applies. Sort of. So I would say like a design system is the all-encompassing um, set of foundations and guidelines, in some cases rules, on how to build, design, and write content for a company. So for instance, style guides may just be how to put your logo and what color it should be, but a design system may also include, well, how do we write call to action language on a button? So is it click here, click me, like subscribe, submit? Like what language do you put in there? And that can also be under a design system. How do, does a user like interact with a like product online. So for instance, like a piece of paper is not going to have motion or animation or, and it's not going to have transition effect because right? it's a static medium. But our phones, like, you know, we flip from up one page to the next or we might, uh, things might fade in or fade out. So it's also like, how do you experience those things as well? Ah, um, so Intentional decisions. Like we're, yeah. we're not a fade company. Yeah. We're dissolved. <laughs> it's like when you watch a Star Wars like movie, you know, George Lucas is like, no, 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 no. We're a star wipe family. Yeah. We're not a fade family. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so it's like those are like design system, system uh, decisions that help kind of make up the entire system. So like style is part of it. Language is part of it. Interactions part of it. How you develop things is part of it. Like architectural decisions is part of it. So it's like the over encompassing like company decisions around how you build and create experiences for your audience. And mm -hmm. how many people were working on the design system for the digital side of the Washington Post? Yeah. So this is another thing. This is a whole other episode. Okay. But uh, <laughs> there are different systems of how to manage teams like design systems so oh. for instance <laughs> we used a federated approach and that means there's a core group of people so there was f anywhere between three to five people that were committed to the design system at all times so i would sit down with designers and developers um, we had another engineer and we had another designer and a project manager um, and we would all kind of talk about like what are the next steps for the system what things we need to get done but then for instance if a designer comes along it's like oh i'm making this new component um, it's a series of faces and circles and it's going to be called like an avatar and like there's rules to it. We would then like collaborate with them 
So they would work part time. Maybe they'd work in like on the article page, the Washington Post, the homepage. They would come and collaborate with us in a federated system. So they would come and help us out and help build that part of the design system, contribute to it, and then we would kind of help maintain or refine it. And so we would have designers and developers constantly coming in and out of the design system. There's always four or five like committed, but then you had, you know, dozens of people helping contribute to it. So you were like a gelatinous cube, and then someone with a unique idea would be assimilated into the cube <laughs> to create a rule. So they have a unique idea, and then the system assimilates that idea into standards. Right. Like yeah. the Borg. Kind of like the Borg. No, except the idea is like... Uh, but they're released back once they're right. once the usefulness is sucked from them. You put them back <laughs> no, into no, the No, no. So it's room. more of like the Borg would come to you and be like, you're part of the Borg now. Sorry. Um, well, if you want people to adopt a system, you can't be like, this is the system. You're using it now. Sorry. I did it has that. to be like, this is our system. We're building it together so that way you have joint ownership of those ideas. Because the worst idea, if you're a creative person or you like building things, the last thing you want is someone to come and be like, no, no, you're doing your job wrong. This is the blue, not that blue. This is the border radius, not this border radius. So there's like a give and take of like, no, no, no. Like I designed this icon that I really, really love. And now that my unknown other designers working on it, I can then advocate for that work. And so they're not only advocating for their own work, they're also advocating for the system. So a federated approach allows people to feel not only like they've contributed to the system, but they also own that system. Okay, so, so it's like Vecna. When he went to the upside down, he still got to have his unique identity, <laughs> but he was working for the hive mind. Is that correct? It's like if you're a state in the U.S. government, you can have your own laws, but you also have some of the federal laws. Okay, and right? if a state has a really cool law, then sometimes the federal government will be like, ooh, tell us how you did that, and maybe we'll adopt it for mm -hmm. a great applications so what would be a, like a contrasting system to that yeah like is there a you know authoritative yeah gosh i was trying to remember the names communism. for communism there, there is like a centralized system and that is more of like we decide and distribute it downwards so it's mm -hmm. more like a waterfall fall you system can pull out your phone if you want to reference specific names god i had to look it up i don't know it's, it's, it's flooding around my noodle somewhere want me to look it up for, for the no that's yeah. fine all right Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, it's fine. We're a time crunch here. We can yeah, link. We'll link to it in the comments below. Smash that subscribe. Um, <laughs> but what I'll say is, uh, there's like this. So we had a federated system. There's like a core group, but the people flow in and out, contribute it. There's the other system where there is a core group, and they tell other people this is how you need to function. And there's another option where there's no core group, and you just kind of like all kind of uh, collaborate together, and hopefully it works out. Okay, so what sorts of decisions were you making? And uh, how did that shape the experience of working there and the experience of people reading the news? I don't know if there's an example of like someone had an idea for a new feature and it was ambiguous. And then the Federation helped them create a consistent rule, which then l led to the development of a new button. Yeah, yeah. So I think what uh, a design system works really well for is taking like those good ideas that are kind of one-offs, right? Like I have a one feature, one specific use, um, and then making it more uh, applicable to other reasons. Or you kind of generalize it, allow it to be reusable. And so for instance, like the Washington Post had a feature where you could gift up to like, your, if you're a subscriber, you could gift an article to someone. So for instance, hypothetically, if I had a subscription to the Washington Post and I wanted to share it with Sarah, I could send her a gift like link. It's like, here's the link. You can come and, and read this article for free, even though it was so paywall. So thoughtful of you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
And so definitely not just like sharing your accounts. But so they might have a great idea for one feature, right? So we had a button, we put it like on our article page, you can click that button. Um, but the idea is like, okay, how, if someone else wants to add another feature to that article, right? Like maybe we have a, a new like share on Reddit button or something mm -hmm. like that. How can we use a lot of that logic and design decisions so we can get that feature out more quickly? Ah. So for instance, for the design system, uh, we already had an internal component that was like a button icon and so when you sometimes you just see an icon that's a button you know it's like a, it's like a little heart this post on uh instagram or facebook or i'm gonna like upvote this on uh reddit it's just like a little icon of a heart or a th like a hand holding a thumb up so we had like an internal component that we called like the button icon that you would use and we had a suite of icons of like 100 icons and then from there they can compose up this like tray of button icons for an article, which we called the article action bar. So we instantly like, started building up this like vocabulary, right? So that way, if you're a designer or developer or product manager, you can say like, oh, can we add a new button icon to the article actions bar so else people can share this more easily on Reddit, right? Whereas before it'd be like, hey, can we add like a new uh, feature as like an action on the article? Kind of like where those buttons are right now, you know, like the circular ones and like, um, can we like add it towards the end? And so there's like a lot of like words you could use to fill out ideas. So like, it's kind of like a, I think like a dictionary of it's just like that little gray circle round thing that has an action at the top of our articles. You're like, oh, it's a button icon in the article action. So quickly you're giving your like coworkers a bunch of more detailed information with three words instead of like mm -hmm. three sentences. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so like the design system work wasn't just like, how does it look and how does it function, but how quickly can you communicate higher level ideas to create new features? So for instance, your question about like, well, how does that work to make a new feature is that we already had like the button icon built. We already had like this article action um, bar built. And so when we wanted to like make a gift button all we had to do was kind of like add that extra logic in for that button and kind of ship it out in that component mm -hmm. so you know people start to see like little small microsystems within a larger system and they can kind of start to kind of play and design and build within those places so for instance a product manager might see the whole article but then they might see like the little article action bar of like well what can we add in this space what can we do in this space so mm -hmm. it allows people to kind of take a really big amorphous idea and kind of break it down into smaller and smaller chunks in their mind which i think is a reoccurring theme of this podcast yeah, and creating consistent language and in the process of determining what to call it, you actually were more clearly defining what it does versus like the the whatever icon we want area became the article action bar because these are actions people can take. It's not passive. Right. You could just call it links at the top of the page, but then that makes it much more amorphous and people might start putting whatever nonsense in there that doesn't doesn't make sense to be in there. But when you call it an article action bar, all of a sudden that tells you exactly what it does and exactly what you could add to it if someone had an idea to add. Yeah. yeah. Or if someone had an idea to add something, well, where would we put that? Well, how about the article mm -hmm. action bar? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I love like semantics, like the yeah. concept of naming things to give them meaning with the name. I know like all names are made up, right? But we mm -hmm. have other words like action and bar and button. And these have like, you know, metaphors in our brain that can kind of click. Sure. And so how do you use language to be very descriptive when talking about your work? Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, to kind of 
gets rid of that cognitive overhead of like, oh, how do I describe this thing? How do I talk about it? And you can just get your idea right out there. And so there is like the design system part, which is like, how does this look? How does this function? But the communication systems is like something I always really love because, you know, as a journalist who works in engineering, surprise, I love both technical things and word things. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the thing that I always really loved. It's like, well, what do you call this hue of red? Mm -hmm. And what name, what meaning does that name have? You could say like, oh, this is red and this is dark red, and those have like hex codes aligned to them. Or you could say, we were talking about this earlier, like uh, this is red 80 and red 100. And you know that red 100 is like 20 degrees darker than red 80, right? And that way, if you have like a blue 100 and a blue 80, then it's like, oh, well, I'm sure red 80 and blue 80 might have the same like darkness, right? They might have the same, they're not as light as maybe like blue and red 100 are mm -hmm. and so then you can kind of start using a system of like colors that already has like inherent meaning so yeah. like giving names like those things can yeah. like really help people understand and then you can give red 100 the name of uh warning and so like oh, i want it to be a warning color and so no longer you're talking you're not talking about a hex code anymore you're not talking about red anymore you're talking about this idea of like how do you convey warning to a user and so then neither the designer or the developer has to think about like red or hex codes. They just think about the warning color. And so, and then it has both um, kind of semantic meaning, like, well, warning kind of like alert, you know, but also it has the deep, like, um, like technical meaning because you already have like the, the color red subscribed to it and you have the hex code subscribed to it. So it allows you to like have like higher meaning to simple like uh, ideas. So what you're saying is not, you've layered names on top of that color. So you started with a hex code that made no sense to anyone except someone who is, you know, very sort of knowledgeable on what hex code data means. Mm -hmm. You went to red 80, red 100, and then you added, well, this is a warning red. Our red 100 is a warning red, but warning red still means to you red 100 and hex code, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that allows everybody to start talking in like the same language, right? Because mm -hmm. maybe like a product manager doesn't know their hex codes, right? Because sure. like, why would they, you know? And maybe like a developer doesn't want to remember the user behavior of colors of like, oh, why do we use blue? Why do we use red? Like they don't remember those things, right? right. Like you get a successful like green check mark after you've uh, bought your things in your cart, you know? Um, but a project manager likes those things, right? So like, oh, we need to convey... Uh, warning or seriousness here like oh we need to convey success here and so if both the product manager developer and designer are all talking about the word success and those all mean something unique and specific to them right like oh this is the variable i use in the code or this is the hex code i use in my design or this is the meaning of success for a product manager they're all now using the same word around the same concept but it has different implications for their work mm -hmm. and so i think that's that higher level communication that i really love right because before we were all trying to like speak our own languages to like each other and now we're all kind of using a shared language but then the linchpin of that is that you have you have to have a dictionary of terms so that if you know if the project manager and the programmer are talking and the programmer says oh we'll use red 100 and the project manager can't recall if red 80 or red 100 was warning red then you need to have some sort of intermediary and the and let's say the you know the designer doesn't recall oh was this warning red or caution red or you know whatever so at a certain point can't that sort of break down into lack of meaning almost if like we're if we're all many, using different yeah. words for the same thing 
Yeah. So I think that's why like documentation is so important in like any system you use, right? Like I, I don't agree. I mean I, I think he's the dungeon <laughs> side. I'm the documentation. Oh man. I'm no, pro I'm pro documentation. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm all like, about has it. this guy never opened Jira? <laughs> I've never opened Jira. I don't even know what that is. Oh man. Then you could see in the product request we need a new alert button and then tag it or write in the notes using warning red and then somewhere you could click on that and see what warning red is because someone's notated it oh all right so yeah explain that to me i mean documentation so internal and external documentation it sounds like and so when we talked about earlier about style guide yeah logo should always be 100 pixels from the top and 120 pixels from the right that's uh the very basis of documentation for style but with jason's work yeah, it's pretty much the exact same thing, but just kind of elevated, right? So the example of this logo needs to be in the upper right, it needs to be this color, it's the same thing, right? Where it's like, this is the hex code we use, this is like what we call it, and this is how it's used, you know? So that's like written down in documentation. So you can like go to a web internal web page of the Washington Post and learn what those things mean. Right. Um, right. So that way, it's also helpful if maybe you don't remember exactly like, what is the warning color again, you can go and look it up. Yeah, mm-hmm. but and also reference if you're, it when you're making a new feature mm-hmm. proposal. Right. And if you're new, right, you're a new developer or designer at any company, you can then read the documentation and kind of understand the system there. Hopefully, like the meaning behind the words kind of becomes more and more abstract and more and more descriptive, right? Because to describe something really, really specifically, you often have to use like a lot of words, right? Like sure. it's the circular gray um, UI element uh, underneath the headline and it has that plus icon on it. And when you click on it, you can like add it to your reading list. Mm-hmm. And like, that's very descriptive, but it's also very long and hard to say. And so that's why I think the, the evolution of any language, we invent more words. Mm-hmm. So that way we can use one word instead of like, you know, multiple sentences. And so there's definitely uh, like the pros of being able to say like, oh, it's the article action bar and you move on. But there's also the cons of like, you need to know what that is first. And right. so that's why I think the how language kind of builds on itself. Like if you're a kid and you're learning how to like read for the first time, you learn some words and you learn some more words and then you learn the really big words and how those big words can interplay in sentences and how sentences can be constructed. Um, and I feel the same way as when you're in like any kind of design system or language. It's like, you go, oh, I kind of, okay, now we have these colors and now we have these names for these colors and then I know how those colors are used. And so if you design a system that hopefully is kind of has inherent, like, um, under, like, inherent qualities to the names you can understand like mm-hmm. kind of going back to that red 100 blue 100 mm-hmm. like if you see 100 at both of them you're like oh these might be linked if there's like oh so red 200 red 300 400 you know blue 100 blue 200 blue 300 blue 400 our minds are already really good at seeing similar similarities you know and kind mm-hmm. of like associate them as the same when they are, are related so kind of like leaning into those core semantic principles helps us like make names that actually has meaning to it mm-hmm. and would you say that um some majority of the names that you're creating are it's telling a new person the purpose of that thing within the name right right is that like is that a common thing in design systems that the name should hint at the purpose yeah you should so when we try to name things in a design system it's a good idea to kind of lean on existing like frameworks right so Mm -hmm. uh a common ui element in web development is like the accordion i don't know Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with this idea i'm a weird al fan yeah so like we know the instrument accordion how it expands and contracts uh there's also like uh drop downs that can expand and you know expand and contract and so they call like an accordion so you kind of can lean on language that way but also Mm -hmm. accordion has 
its own meaning inside of like web development. So if you ask a web developer what an accordion is, they're probably going to know what it is. If you have ask like a UI designer what an accordion is, they're going to know what it is. Yes. So if the post makes a new component that looks and walks and talks like an accordion, we're going to call it an accordion. All right. So you're sense. not always making a novel. You're kind of walking the line between established uh, understanding of digital design and novel elements. Mm -hmm. without being like well at the washington post we don't call it an accordion we call it a widgety woo right which is just like inherently complicated like for instance when we were going to quote unquote name the washington post design system because we wanted to like give it a name a lot of people like oh at uh, i'm trying to think of the crazy examples oh at ibm we call it carbon but there a lot of people moved away from these cutesy names because if Mm -hmm. you go to ibm like oh we're using carbon a new employee like wait what are you what like are you the element, about? the carbon? Yeah. And so when we named the Washington Post Design System, guess what we called it? The Washington Post Design System. And why do we call it that? Because it makes sense. Exactly. And yeah. so when we name components and things, we name them so they make sense. Ah. So the same thing is true in medicine. So like traditionally in medicine, you know, whoever discovered the thing in the body would just name it after themselves, you know? Like mm-hmm. I call this organ the Keith. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, <clears throat> a lot of a lot of times it's much more specific than that than an organ. You know, it's like a, a specific duct or a junction or something like that or area of the brain. We've got a bunch of areas of the brain still that are named. You know, the Wernickes and Brokas and the, like those are like named after the you know white dudes that discovered them. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make any sense. So like there's there's this big push, sort of in the you know uh, anatomy slash medical world to change names to things that actually make sense. The trouble that they run into, though, is that you've got doctors who have been trained 30 years ago mm. who have no idea what the hell you're talking about when you say, you know, the, like the new name of something. And then in the middle of brain surgery, the patient flatlines because they didn't know where the Wernicke was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but that's the tricky thing is like when a word already has a lot of meaning subscribed to it, it's hard to rename that word. Yeah. And so that's why when we would ever name something a design system, like the first thing you choose has to be really well thought out. So we would spend Mm -hmm. sometimes a week or two weeks while working on other work thinking about what that name should be. Mm -hmm. Because the moment you say, this is the article actions component, you're never going to be able to rename it. Like if someone wants to rename part of the brain, like good luck. You know what I mean? Because it's like really hard because it already has so much meaning to it. And so Mm -hmm. you can start to be like, oh yeah, it's also, or it's also called this. Mm -hmm. Or you could start teaching, you know, med school students like, oh, it also means this. Yeah. But uh, then you have two meanings for one thing. Yeah. And then your brain is better or worse. Right. Well, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at with my earlier question. So if we have these three different levels of names that all mean the same thing, at what point does that actually become less useful Mm. because we all have to refer to a style guide instead of all using like a common sort of nomenclature that we can um, sort of agree on when we're talking. So that, I mean, I get that like if you have a written request for something, it could just link to the style guide Mm -hmm. or whatever. But even that, I mean, although that's very easy to read, even that requires someone to write the software to have, you know, the style guide and put the link in and like all that stuff just takes more time. Whereas if we just have one name that we all use for the thing, isn't there something that we, like, isn't, isn't that easier to communicate? Yeah, I think, I mean, if I can get really high, I can get really high level here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think whenever you're communicating any concept, it like, what's it called? What does it do? And how does it relate to other things? Because that gives our brain an internal model of how to understand larger systems. Because if we have a name for it, we can quickly go into our little internal catalog of our brain and identify that thing. 
what does it do allows us to know like the part of the brain like how does that interact with our other parts of the brain what parts of the brain does it sit next to um how does it interact with those parts of the brain what is it supposed to do what is it computing those kind of things and then how does it relate to other things you know like where yeah exactly like where is it sitting and like how does it work with other pieces of the brain mm-hmm. so for us like having three names for a single color is to solve those things like uh warning red gives it like the meaning of what this red is red 800 or eight, red 80 um, gives it the relation to all the other colors. So you know how red 80 interacts with blue 80, yellow 80, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And then the hex code is like, well, what is it actually doing on the computer level? Mm-hmm. You know, so because when you have just a hex code, you're like, well, how does this hex code interact with the rest of our palette? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know that unless there's a defined system. So that's why like, the red 80 comes into play. Right. And so, then red warning is like, well, what does red 80 mean? What yeah. do we use it for? Oh, it's yeah. for warning. So like we have multiple words for things that helps communicate those ideas sure yeah that makes sense and so really it's it's you're not thinking of it as three different names you're just it's it's one long name it's like a first middle and last name yeah, yeah for, you do, for yeah, one exactly. color of red yeah 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 you can figure yeah. out where like uh, my last name like where they hail from you know what i mean right, but you yeah. can know who they are by their first name and things like that which yeah. makes sense too because i'm you know now like thinking as a programmer if i'm trying to program uh you know oh i have to put in this pop-up for you know like someone's going to leave the washington post page or whatever what color should i make the button and then you think well maybe it should be warning red that would make sense and then even without a project designer involved or whatever you could prototype something at least that makes some some amount of sense with the style guide rather than making it you know blue or something yeah yeah exactly and that's the whole concept right if you have a design system that has like clearly defined kind of foundations and rules and names then you can start kind of acting independently. So it's that kind of reverse mm-hmm. idea of creativity. Earlier we talked about like, well, what if like a design system tells me what to do? Then that kind of sucks because I'm a creative person and I want to like build cool and fun things. But if there's a system that you can lean on and like, oh, I have to build this thing and it's due by tomorrow and I need to like warn someone because of the pop-up, you know, is telling them they, they should, you know, try to subscribe again before they leave, then you already kind of have that inherent meaning to help make that decision and work independently and hopefully enable your creativity instead of hinder it. Yeah, it seems like it gives you flexibility because then what if someone comes in and says, well, colorblind people can't see warning red. Warning red exists beyond its hex code. Warning red is a function that you could easily change the hex code of if new information is introduced into the system. Yeah, because think about like, well, we want to change our warning color from red to yellow. And we use that warning color in thousands of places throughout hundreds of components across dozens of uh, different platforms and devices. So if you have a system of like, this means warning, it's assigned to this color, it's assigned to this hex code. If you want to update that hex code, you don't need to rename, you know, red 80, you don't need to rename warning. But if you want to change warning to yellow, you can like, change that definition. So it allows you to kind of like work within that system and change mm-hmm. it across a lot of products and kind of scale. So in that federated system that you were talking about earlier, if someone comes in and they're designing, um, I don't know. What what might someone design? A new button? A new... Yeah, sure. Yeah. Someone's designing a new button. And they use the style guide. They sort of have a jumping off point from the style guide that they use. But then they sort of get creative, as you say, and deviate from the style guide. And then they've created something that they think is awesome, but it doesn't fit the style guide precisely. What's the... And, and let's say you come to them and you say, well, so we do have this sort of standard in the style guide for this piece of the button. Like, we don't use an exclamation point and you use an exclamation point, mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. you know. And the person says, well, 
I feel like this exclamation point is really essential for this button, you know, mm -hmm. and I feel very, I feel very strongly about the outcome that I've, yeah. that I've produced here. What is the sort of resolution process for that? Like what, how does, how does that move forward from there? Yeah. So I think this is a real issue. This is a real problem. This happens all the time. Not yeah. a problem. It's a real, um, like workflow, this like way of life, right? Because people, um, when they design things, like they want to evolve the design they want to evolve the system they want to evolve the product mm -hmm. and if you have like a system that can never change then you'll never evolve so if someone's like i want to add an exclamation mark here we kind of have this rule that like a lot of design should be like 80 percent kind of driven by the system so you know you're like using the right colors and the right spacing and generally the right language then you have this 20 percent of like this is where i can iterate this is where i can be creative this is if i want to add an exclamation mark to this button i know i can do that and so the process would be you can like add it and hopefully the system is flexible enough not rigid but flexible enough to like do a one-off of like having that um, exclamation point at the end of a button and then if you want to like make that part of the system because maybe you do testing on it and that click-through rate goes up really really high because you're like oh an exclamation mark i'm definitely gonna click on this button yeah like that's yeah. a good iteration that's a good experiment that was very successful and if you want to make a successful iteration of that again, you want to be able to create it. So bring that back into the system. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we kind of talk about like proposing new ideas or adding things to the system. Right. And so if you had a successful experiment from that 20% iteration you did on your new button and it worked really, really well, then let's propose that and bring it back to the system and find a way to make that systematic. So maybe on the button, there's like a little option that's like, add exclamation mark right mm -hmm. or maybe you change the documentation that says like when we write doc when we write um call to action text on our buttons we like to end them with exclamation marks right um because we notice in this past experiment the results were this and it worked out really well so that way hopefully you're iterating not only on individual design through an individual button but you also iterate on the system as a whole so then the federated approach you as an individual designer maybe you'll go and like do the exclamation point you see it worked well and you say like hey guys check out how well this worked out yeah and then, and then the, the, the team is then like okay then we'll figure out how to make it part of the system and then mm -hmm. I imagine there's someone within that team who's like i agree with the exclamation marks but let's not use it when it's the button add obituary yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah because uh if you're trying to get someone to subscribe to something maybe it's worth it but yeah. it's also not a good idea depending on context and so they kind and of your subscription <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> right. Woo! Yeah. and so i think there is that aspect of uh the bigger picture, right? And so one-off ideas are great because you can kind of test little ideas to see if they work or don't work, but bringing it back into a larger system does take thought. And you have to think about like, oh, how is it going to be applied? Where is it going to go? What meaning is going to change? And those kind of things. And so that's where like the two-week kind of like, oh, let's like, you know, stroke our chins and think about like, how is this going to change the whole system? You know, mm -hmm. um, that's where that comes into play. So yeah, absolutely, Sarah. It is definitely like, not just like, let's just apply it and be done like there is the you know the consideration the proposal yeah, i'm already seeing the style guide of buttons branching and it's like well in <laughs> sections a and two you can use an exclamation mark but over here you know actually warning red is yellow because we don't want people to be mad like depending right. on behavior and the desired outcome and the like headspace or or even what the article is about yeah and so that's the thing when you branch too far you no longer have a system yeah, right? because you just have a bunch of people working in silos and so the idea is bring those things together and have them pretty well like defined foundations so people can build off of them they can still explore be creative because that's important for evolving products involving you know evolving companies but to kind of cut out the uh the overhead thinking of like well what is a button 
what is like how round should I make this button? Like that's not a problem designer should solve, right? Mm -hmm. They should just copy and paste button and move on with their day, right? And figure out what the button says, exclamation point or not, because that's what makes a difference. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, if it's totally lawless, then you're just kind of like, yeah, trying to figure out like, what color it exactly should be, and you're thinking about different hex codes and what it should be, and all these kind of design choices. And so, um, it's a it's a fine line between having. Uh, some kind of system at, at play in the center to help make sure things feel consistent and they're easy to use and build, but don't create like a stagnant, like rigid system that no one can kind of evolve and be creative in. Right. So, so like any language, it evolves, but unlike language, it evolves in a thoughtful way. So there's a process for evolution, right? Hmm. Um, what do you mean by that? Like, uh, evolves in a thoughtful way. Well, so what you're talking about. So if I wanted to add my exclamation point to that button, you're not just just gonna say, yeah, great, okay, add the exclamation point, mm -hmm, right? You win. You yeah, know? right, right, right. It, it, You're you're actually gonna look into it. You're gonna, oh yeah, so we'll prototype that button. Yeah, yeah. We'll prototype it with the exclamation point. We'll see how it goes. If it goes good, great. We'll add it, and maybe we'll add it to the style guide. We'll add it to, add it to other buttons that could use an exclamation point. But if it doesn't go well, then yeah, we'll just get rid of the exclamation mark, and you know, you were just wrong about that. Yeah, you know? and I think I like what you said about like how language naturally evolves and changes meaning too. Because like if someone uses a new word, a new slang, or something like that, and eat it, here, <laughs> right? What is eat? What is eat? Yeah, what I mean, if it were me? if it were language, that person would just add the exclamation point because they wanted to. Yeah, and then and I would see it and be like, "Hey, it's a great idea. I'm going to copy you." Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I, and you would, and mm -hmm. there'd be some guy over here who's pissed because you put an exclamation point on there, but he can't do anything about it because it's language, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm, the, the word myriad comes to mind. I don't know. Uh, do you remember? This was a big debate. I remember when I was in college and I had a lit major roommate who would go on and on about the word myriad. Are you familiar at all with no, the no, great no, no, myriad no. debate? I am not. So myriad, the original meaning of myriad was like, um, an uncountable number, right? So if I looked up at the stars in the sky and I said, there are myriad stars mm. in the sky, that would be the appropriate use of the word myriad. Um, but people started using it as to, they people would say there is a myriad of stars in the sky, mm. and I I forget that the the, the uh, you know that what what is an adjective or and whatever, and that's probably why people started using it poorly is because they didn't understand the like you know form of the word or whatever. Um, but there were, you know, English nerds who got really upset about that for a very long time and would correct people when they said, would say there's a myriad of stars in the sky. They say, nope, there are myriad stars in the sky. Mm. And like I say, I had an English major roommate and, um, he would get pissed about this. And over the, in the course of being in college, um, Merriam Webster added, the the other form of myriad oh. to the dictionary oh. because it had been used so many times mm -hmm. because it just be become the assumed meaning of the yeah. word that people would say a myriad of stars rather than myriad of stars so they said well it can be either of these forms of of word um, how did your roommate take that you know there were a myriad of reactions <laughs> yeah there were there were a, there were myriad reactions. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yes, the dictionary had to do a similar thing with the words literally and figuratively yeah. because around the eighties yeah. to nineties, the meaning, or I guess it might have been the, the meaning swapped. Right. Yeah. So yeah, when skunk term. Yeah, skunk. Term. That's how they, the term for that is like when a term is normally used for one thing, and then over time people misuse it to mm -hmm. mean the other thing. Mm -hmm. That the the definition changes. So, for instance, another one I love is "pull yourself up by your bootstraps." 
back in the day, that used to mean something that it's impossible to do. Because if you right. think about it, like you're wearing your boots, you cannot lift you, yourself up by yeah. going down and picking up your bootstraps and picking your own self up. So it was an impossible task. Like, yeah. oh, good luck with that. You're really picking yourself up with your bootstraps there. Like you're not going to be able to do that. But now it's like, oh, wow, they really picked themselves up from their bootstraps. And they made it work. They made it happen, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it's kind of like uh, how people use words also changes over time. So that's an interesting syntax thing, right? And semantics yeah. thing is like, well, if words do change, and like, for instance, in my job, like if the web UI, we don't call an accordion an accordion anymore because a better word comes along, then you have to adapt and kind of maybe change the name of things. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, we were even seeing this like the slave and master debate within programming. Yeah. Don't no, do it. Don't There's not a debate. There's no debate. Just There's don't no do it. There's no longer a master bedroom. <laughs> but that's, yeah, it's a good, it's a good change. It's interesting to see like our biases within language and within our systems yeah. and change them when it can be improved to make more sense. Like this is not a slave. Yeah. And also they can have more meaning. Like we use main and develop because the yeah. main branch is the main branch of work like it's hard to use another word for it and develop is the one that we're actively developing Makes so those sense. words not only are more appropriate but they also are more descriptive you know and like we used to use terrible did words you like, used to use master and slave for those two terms everybody did like, oh. yeah, yeah we did. did yeah yeah so it wasn't until sorry i'm not a yeah yeah it was a big move from twitter <laughs> like three years ago after the george floyd like event they said like yeah. we're going to change this and then they people who had never thought about it before like oh yeah these words are loaded because we never thought about it never challenged yeah. it, never questioned and it and the real mm -hmm. estate community was rocked <laughs> but now you'll hear uh not master suite this is the owner's suite this is the main bedroom wow owner suite yeah. i don't know i don't know that changing it from master to owner is really that much yeah. better especially if you remember that it used to be called the master oh. suite <laughs> but one thing yeah the one thing that we used to say was like oh it's a blacklist or a white list yeah but now it's like a blocked list and an allow list i got you because allow list also means like oh yeah these are the things you allow sure whereas white list is inherently racist yeah right racist right. yeah so it's one of those things where i think naming conventions yeah they can mean a lot of things and also like you should also question like what those words mean and how you're using them one thing we also introduce in speaking of these words um we use um uh, oh my gosh i'm already blanking on the name of it um for a lot of our projects we use an inclusive linter which means like it's spell check for inclusivity so if you mm -hmm. want to call something like a dummy component and be like try to think of a better word besides dummy because mm -hmm. that is kind of like hurtful and offensive if someone wants to use a component that's called dummy like how does that make them feel right so like maybe something more descriptive could be nice um so so wait so you actually have like a like a the program that checks your words for that or like you do that with each other's work they, uh, we have a program so if i'm typing code yeah. and i use yeah. like oh this is the uh whitelist it'll be like no 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 change this word to allow list yeah. do you allow guys no yeah. so yeah guys I'm, isn't allowed either yeah. i feel as a western west coast person i do not like that move because guys is the west coast version of y'all yeah, yeah, yeah. You have no other option. So when that that was the big wave where Slack started saying, you cannot use this word. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think also it's struggle it's hard because the English language doesn't have a good like collective pronoun, you know, for a group of people. When you walk into a group of a party, you're like, Hey everybody, you hey you all. Like we just we never really got that Hello, far in English. Everyone. Yeah, yeah. I've just been trying bad. to embrace y'all. I, I since I moved great. to the East Coast, I say y'all. Yeah. And yeah. I come back to the West Coast and I feel bad about using y'all because they're probably like, yeah, East you Coast, guys. East Coast you changed guys you. Who do you think you are coming in here appropriating the word y'all? That was our conversation with Jason Bernard, a fantastic fellow. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Um, 
for posterity's sake, I wanted to uh, let everyone know that the original form for myriad, as I understand it, was an adjective, in fact, um, meaning a countless or extremely great in number. Um, the example of sentence that Merriam-Webster gives us is the myriad lights of the city, as opposed to the noun that it became, also meaning a countless or extremely great number. However, uh, in the noun form, you would use in a sentence as uh, networks connecting a myriad of computers. So there we go. For posterity's sake, uh, and um, so that my old roommate doesn't tear out his hair if he listens to this episode, that is the uh, original and transformed meaning of myriad. Be sure to get back with us here in a couple weeks. We will be uh, coming out with part two of this conversation where we will dive into the world of Dungeons and Dragons. We'll talk about names and categorizations in the worlds of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, how they help us, how they hurt us, how they can uh, expand or contract our horizons. And then we'll talk a little bit more about building a style guide for your campaign in that episode as well. And hopefully have um, something to put up on the website uh, for you um, in that regard. So uh, check back with us in a couple weeks. Uh, thanks for listening. Dungeons and Documentation is a production of Keith and Sarah's Free Time. This episode's executive producer was Oslo Cobblepot. Theme music is by Ian Post. Underwriting is provided by Shepherd Creative Enterprises. You can find us online at dungeondocs.com or dungeonsanddocumentations.com. This episode brought to you in part by DM Tools. DM Tools, need a local watering hole? You can generate one at dm-tools.fission.app. That's dm-tools.fission.app. This episode of Dungeons and Documentation is brought to you by Completely Arbitrary. Do you like trees? Listen to their show, but only after you listen to our show. They have enough listeners. This episode brought to you in part by the English language. The English language, it's universal as long as you speak really loudly and slowly. The English language, don't leave home without it. And I will never, <laughs> ever make a website where the button says yes please because i look at that and i just want to throw up all over your head i don't even care if i want to go to your event if the button that i have to click on to purchase a ticket does not say purchase ticket it says yes please i will not go wow because that is dumb i want the button to tell me what i'm doing i don't want the button to put words into my mouth like what if instead of register now the button said pledge your allegiance to my podcast <laughs>